So if you would open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, I want to share a passage of scripture and uh, kind of come into the conclusion of our uh, study on the economy of God. And, you know, right in the middle, we talked about giving the nature and biblical principles of tithing and giving and offerings and first fruits and all of that, but I wanted to be careful not to make this about money, because it's not about money. It's about something else entirely. And we started out our study by reviewing the fact that God made us, and God made the world and everything in it, and it all belongs to Him. Uh, we begin a, a biblical understanding of sharing our lives and our resources with others by realizing that we're only managers of what belongs to Him. He owns everything, and it all belongs to Him. Now, this morning, as we kind of uh, emerge on the other end of our study, and we by no means exhausted it, my goodness, there's so much more that we could talk about. I, I, I've thought about at some point or time just doing a series of messages about kind of a biblical view of welfare, so to speak, and a biblical view of retirement and all of those kinds of things, you know, that have to do with uh, what do we do when people have need because of their life circumstances or what do we do uh, about retirement, what is the biblical concept. There's so much more we could talk about, and uh, I'm not going to dwell on that at this particular time. Perhaps it'll come up and Scripture passages as time goes along. But as we come out of the chute, talking about God's economy, we come back to the reality that also, not only does everything belong to Him, but we belong to Him. We are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His property, can I say that? Because that's true. We belong to God, and we belong to Him doubly as followers of Jesus Christ, because not only have we been made by Him and owe our life to Him, but He has redeemed us and purchased us back from the slave market of sin. So, both in creation and in redemption, He has doubly uh, made and purchased our lives. We belong to Him. 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 1, to give you a little bit of backdrop again to this passage, Paul is kind of making his way back to Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem has undergone some terrible economic times, famine, other natural things have created a real financial hardship, and sustenance is even a question. Are they going to survive as, as a people? And Paul is kind of trying to raise some relief funds for the church at Jerusalem, and he's doing that by going through the Roman Empire and the churches that he has helped establish and collecting an offering. So that's the backdrop for 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to read you the passage because two verses that are in this passage are key to what we're talking about today. Now, brethren, we want to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And by the way, the church at Corinth was pretty well off. I mean, they had some people in it that had some money. 
And we learned that because of the way they were handling communion. Some of them were turning it into a big party and bringing out the, you know, the top shelf liquor and, and just having a ball. And, and other people didn't have anything and they weren't even sharing. So we know that there were some wealthy people at the church at Corinth. And it was a church that was generally in a better situation. But the churches in Macedonia were not so well off. They were more along the, you know, barely making it kind of lines. And Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about the Macedonians. He says, We want to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Do you catch all those descriptive terms? Their abundance of joy, their deep poverty, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the least, the, the people you least expect to be able to give generously often give the most? Um, one of the people in the early service as they were leaving this morning said back in their college days they used to do a lot of hitchhiking back in their college days. It's a little safer to do that. I won't tell you who said that. But anyway, uh, it was a little safer to do that. And um, he said, I could always guess who was going to pick me up. It was not going to be the person driving the new fancy car. He said, these were his words, it was usually somebody that had a coat hanger for an antenna and a, a pair of vice clip crips for the door handle and uh, an old beater, and they were the ones that would give me a ride. He said I could just pick them out coming down the road. So many times it's the people who have walked in the shoes of need that respond to the needs of others, whereas those who have lived in the lap of luxury just frankly don't care. It just doesn't touch them. And Paul was noticing this about the Macedonians. He said they had joy in Christ, but they had tremendous poverty, but the two combined to overflow with liberality. For I testify, verse 3, that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of saints. Boy, I tell you what. <clears throat> if I were assigned the task, I mean, there's some jobs I would never want in this life. One of them is being a college president. College presidents are no nothing but glorified fundraisers, for the most part. <laughs> Even they will admit that. And, uh, you know, there's, asking people for money is the thing I just hate to do more than anything else. And so if I had one of those positions where you had to ask folks for money... What would be better than to have people beg to give? Hey, you forgot me. You left me out. I want to give too. Oh, wow, that's just amazing. And that's what these Macedonians were like. Paul was not even thinking about them being able to give much because they were struggling. But they said, don't leave us out. We want to participate. We want to give. Send somebody through to pick up our offering. That was their attitude begging with us with much favor and urging for the favor of participation and support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Mark that verse. 
So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well to the Corinthians, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness and the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Two verses key in this passage that we want to dwell on this morning. One of them is, they first gave themselves to the Lord. That's really where it begins. They first gave themselves to the Lord. And then the last verse where he says that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor for your sake. I mean, look look at the contrast. Lord of the ages, creator of the heavens and earth, everlasting God, comes in a human body in this flesh to a, to a manger in Bethlehem and then says in his ministry, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to sleep. Tremendous change that he became poor, that through his poverty you might be made rich. If there is a dominant theme in all of Scripture, it is the theme of redemption. Call it the salvation story. Call it God's plan for eternal life. Call it whatever you will. But from Genesis to Revelation... God takes three short chapters to paint the backdrop in order to show us how we got into so much trouble. And then, from chapter 3 of Genesis forward, the rest of the Bible tells the story of a loving God redeeming a lost race. The whole theme of the scripture is redemption. And you know, when we talk about that in Christian circles, when we talk about redemption, we, we mean it as a theological term, a doctrinal term. This is, a, this is a biblical concept, redemption. But that's not the primary meaning of redemption. In fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, you'll find that maybe the last definition offered in the whole list is Christians refer to redemption as what happens through Christ in the gospel. I mean, that's the last definition. The primary definition of the word redemption is economic. It is an economic term. And so if you look it up in the dictionary, and I looked it up in the online dictionary and provided some definitions for you, if you can see them. I can see them with the help of my glasses. Um, It's a verb used with an object to buy or pay off, to clear by payment, to redeem a mortgage. So... Uh, most of us are aware, if you're still making house payments, that you don't own your house. The bank owns the house. The mortgage company owns the house. They hold the mortgage. But uh, if you live long enough to pay that thing off, the day will come when they surrender the mortgage 
to you with that last payment and you have redeemed your mortgage or you have redeemed your investment or you redeem whatever. It's the idea that you, it, someone else has possession of it right now. And if you don't think that, just look at the terms. Guess who the principal beneficiary of your homeowner's insurance policy is? It is not you. It is your mortgage company. They are the ones who have the investment. They are the ones who want to be protected. They own that. Even though that is in your name, they own it until the day comes when you can redeem your mortgage. Or, as some of the other definitions, to buy back. Like, some, sometimes people go through an unfortunate experience and they lose their home, but maybe a last-minute miracle occurs and they're able to redeem it from the tax sale or foreclosure. It means to recover something by payment or other satisfaction. Like, if you uh, really get desperate and you go down to the pawn shop and you give them your watch and they give you money in return, well, what you're doing is taking out a loan with collateral and they're holding your watch. If you don't show up in a certain period of time and redeem that watch, they can sell it to cover your debt. And that always works in their favor, by the way. They never give you enough money to cover the real value because they want to come out on the winning side. And so there is a redemption that occurs when you go and buy your watch back. Or to exchange something for money or goods, like coupons. How many of you clip, clip coupons? You know, and you go to the store with a pile of coupons and you redeem those things. I very carefully peeled all the stickers off of all the McDonald's articles that had the Monopoly stickers. And I want you to know that Monopoly is now over. I was very careful to peel off all the ones that got me a sandwich or a drink. And they are safely tucked away in a zippered pocket of my uh, glove, uh, my visor, where they will probably be two years from now. And I did not redeem my coupons. But if you give them to them in exchange for the goods, you have redeemed the coupon. All of these are economic terms. They have to do with a financial transaction. And so when we come back to Scripture, we need to recognize that redemption is principally an economic concept. And so in the Bible, when it talks about redemption, we have economic statements like, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold because you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. It's talking about evaluation. Now, the value of an object is reflected in the wisdom of the one appraising it and the price that one is willing to pay. You know, it's kind of interesting to me. Somebody says, well, I have this coin and it's worth this amount of money. And really, it's not worth any more than someone else is willing to pay for it. And so, you can have a coin whose book value is, could be anything, but if no one will give you that for it, it isn't worth that. Um, buying into things like that always have a lot of risk because it tends to run with the market and also with the need and the availability of a kind of surplus income. So, when you want to know what something's really worth, you take it to an expert. How many of you watch the Antique Roadshow? Okay. You know, you know how these people bring their attic relics and stuff, and they bring it to the Antique Roadshow, and they 
Present it to whom? They give it to the person that is an expert. They know they're an expert in two areas. If it's art, they get the art expert. If it's, you know, uh, furniture, they get the furniture expert. Or if it's a pottery or something like that, they find somebody that really knows the subject. Somebody that has wisdom and understands the subject and they understand the market. And they're able to look at that and give an appraisal. You wouldn't want me to appraise your painting. I don't know a lick about paintings. You know, I mean, I might know what I like, but I don't know what they're worth. You want to go to somebody that's an expert, that has wisdom and knowledge, and that can, can say, yes, this is authentic, this is an antique, and if this were to be sold on the market today, there are XY museums that would pay this much money for it. That's real value. They assign a value based on their wisdom and their knowledge. When you go to a knowledgeable person that has wisdom about the item and about the market, they're able to assess its true value. Friends, one of the things that should come home to us as we consider our redemption in Jesus Christ is that God is giving us a statement about our worth. He is the expert appraiser. He knows the value of things. He is the one who understands true worth. And when he looks at you and me and realizes, not that God realizes, but we realize we're lost. Without Christ, we were in the slave market of sin. We were under the bondage of the enemy. We dwelled dwelt in darkness. And we were under the, the lordship of someone else because of our sinful rebellion. You realize, don't you, that there's no such thing as an autonomous human? What I mean by that? A person who really is in control of their own destiny, that really calls all the shots for themselves. There's no such thing. Human beings are either under the control of the enemy and in bondage to sin, or they're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The ability to call our own shots and do our own thing, we're not God. And we're not the devil either who holds us captive. And when God looks upon us in our plight and in our condition, and he makes an appraisal, he says... The only way to get you back is to pay the price for your sin because you owe it. And the wages of sin is death. See the economy in all of this? The wages of sin is death. And that's the price you owe. And the only way I can get you back without compromising my holiness, my integrity, my godhood is if I provide payment. And you know what? You're worth it to me. I will pay for you with the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ. And He will take your place. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the ungodly, the sinless for the sinful. He will take your place. And He will shed His blood to cover your sin. 
and being a man and being without sin and yet being God and having infinite capacity, His blood will be sufficient to cover your sin, to meet the requirements of the law and the justice of my holiness while at the same time releasing you. And I am willing to make that payment. Think about that for a moment. You know, a lot of us struggle with a negative self-image, a poor self-image. Sometimes it's warranted, sometimes it's not. Some people have a poor self-image, but it's because they've done a lot of stupid stuff and they're reaping the benefit of it and they don't like it. And they just run around kind of wringing their hands and holding their heads saying, oh, what a mess I've made. And you know what? You're right. You did. You made a mess. Some people have a poor self-image because their parents divorced. They didn't know how they factored into the mix. They were abandoned. They were abused. They were put down because they were a little different and people rejected them from the time they were preschool age and gave them grief. And they struggle with self-image because of all of those kinds of things. Friends, there is amazing, amazing healing in Jesus when you realize that His appraisal of your worth is His Son on the cross paying for your sin. God said, that's how valuable you are to me. That's how valuable you are to me. And you know, it's, it's a whole different sermon. It's another trail we could follow. But the awareness of God's love for me in the fullness of redemption makes it possible for me to talk to Him frankly about my sin. I don't have to hide from a God who loves me so much and knows everything. I don't have to play games with Him. I don't have to hide, you know, in shame and run away and deny what is true. Because His valuation of me is not based on my performance, but it is based upon my intrinsic worth to Him. That's amazing about redemption. That's amazing. God looks at us and says, I'm the expert. To me, you're worth my son on the cross. I'll pay that price. When an object is redeemed, the ownership transfers to the redeemer. If you live long enough to pay off your mortgage, <laughs> that will be your house. When you make your last car payment, they send you the title. It belongs to you. It is now yours. You own it in every sense of the word. When God redeems us, buys us out of the darkness of sin, and recovers us for Himself, He now owns us for the second way, the second time. He's made us, and now He has purchased us. 
with the blood of His Son. We belong to Him in every sense of the word. You're not your own, Paul says to the Corinthians. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your members because you don't have a right to do whatever you please. You belong to someone. He has purchased you with His own blood. And regardless of whether we recognize the fact or not, we've been freed from sin and its penalty by the blood of Christ. We truly belong to God in every sense of the word. So, what are the implications of this redemption that God has provided for us? As I've mentioned, first of all, it is a declaration by God Himself of our value to Him. But listen to how the the Scriptures explain it in the words of God Himself. Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, said, explain the motivation of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And let me tell you the precious truth about Election, if you please, as God looks through the history and loves this world and loves the people that will respond to the call of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that He wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. When? When they got saved? No, from the foundation of the earth. That from the very beginning, God knew your name. He had you in mind when Jesus went to the cross. I believe that's what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. As our Lord Jesus Christ was nailed bloody and beaten and naked on a cross before the world, he despised the shame of that, counted it as nothing for the joy set before him. As in his heart and mind, he looked at the church that he was redeeming with his own blood. And he knew your name. And he died for you. If he had not died, the Lamb's book of life would be meaningless. But your names were written there. And he came and he paid the price that he could have you for himself. Peter speaks of the trivial value of silver and gold in comparison to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And God expresses His own heart when, like in Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, verse 3, He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you. And if you ever want an image of... Do you ever wonder what God is doing on the throne sometimes? You know, you kind of get that image in your mind of this heavenly throne. And, and Zephaniah gives us some insight in 3.17 where it says, He is rejoicing over you with singing. You know, we come on Sunday morning and we gather as the family of God and we sing songs of praise to Him. But did it ever come to your attention that God is singing songs over you. He joys over you with singing. He is so happy you are His and that you've come home. Isn't that amazing? 
I'm not in any way trying to take away from who he is as God. He's an amazing God, creator, holy, majestic, enthroned upon the heavens. But he loves us and rejoices over us because we are his. That's amazing. So, the second implication is that because of this great love and because of the fact that he now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, rightfully owns us by purchase. Remember Paul said, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's in the context of the passage, you were redeemed with the precious blood. We have an obligation to respond to the investment of God with holiness and with obedience. We belong to Him. We're not our own. Total consecration, total selling out to the Lordship of Christ. As Peter puts it again, if you address as Father one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Now that's not talking about fear like terror. It's not talking about fear like Halloween goofiness inspires. It's not it's not talking about that quaking in my boots with fright. It's talking about a different kind of fear that brings sobriety, that brings um, a seriousness, if you please, that causes us to look attentively at life and not be flippant. Because we don't own ourselves. Sometimes youth and young adulthood is described as sowing wild oats or being on a lark or being carefree, you know, and whatever. And uh, the Scripture basically is saying if you belong to Jesus Christ, God's not a killjoy. Jesus said, I'll give you my joy in abundance. It'll just be flowing out of you. But Peter says you have to think soberly, wisely, perceptively. You need to pay attention to your life in this earth because you belong to Him. And He has purchased you. And you can't just do as you please. You have a Master, a Lord, who has loved you with an everlasting love. And you, can I say, owe allegiance to Him. Sometimes we kind of make the Lordship of Jesus Christ an option. Friends, it's not an option. If you are not under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you're sinning. I don't know any other way to put that. You're being disobedient to God. And He gives you all the wherewithal to be obedient. It's not like this is too hard for me. He gives me His Holy Spirit to enable me. I'm not on my own in this submission. 
I have the power of the Holy Spirit living in me to make it possible to live under the Lordship of Christ. But it is not an option. He has paid for us. He has purchased us. He has redeemed us. Now He wants to fill us so that we, as His people, will populate this world with a reflection of His purposes and His goals and His interests. And our lives belong to Him. Have you surrendered your life to Him? You know, when we talk about economics, typically people think we're talking about money. But I want to correct that notion this morning because money is simply one way of measuring the investment of time. Really, when we talk about economics, we're talking about time. And although it could be mentioned in an obituary occasionally that so-and-so was a philanthropist and did all this with their wealth, every obituary includes two facts, the date of birth and the date of death. And the life is really measured by the seconds, the hours, the days, the months, the years that occurred between those two dates. Our lives are not measured with money. Our lives are measured with time. And when you, when you get a paycheck, you say, I earned X amount of dollars. But may I remind you that you traded something for that. You traded time. And your time is the way you measure your life. Most people breathe 12 times a minute. So give yourself five seconds of breath. You're trading breath for dollars. You're trading minutes for dollars. You're giving your life for that paycheck. The real measure of our investments is what we're willing to spend our time doing. And that's in part what Peter means when he says, live your lives soberly. You only have so much time. And the question is, who's in control of it? How will it be invested? Whether you trade it for dollars and then share the dollars, or whether you literally give your time, as in sitting down with a friend and having a cup of coffee, You are always making an investment somewhere. Or you're simply squandering it and wasting it. Are you available to the Lord to do whatever He wants you to do? Are you open to Him that your time can be spent the way He wants you to spend it? See how economical that is. It's really about how you spend your time in your life. I was thinking about the church. It's kind of been on my mind lately, kind of not just our church, but the church and the church in the West. And, you know, I think about church in other parts of the world. Some places of the world, the underground church meets clandestinely, six or eight or ten at a time in somebody's apartment. 
Other places, they kind of hide out, or, or they have simple mud buildings or thatched buildings where they meet. We have all these elaborate things, you know. And, and then I was thinking about, um, you know, what do you give yourself to, quote, in the church? Because we're, we're always kind of thinking in those terms. And some people look at that and say, that's, that's not worth the investment of my time. I guess one of the things that's really got me thinking is trying to study that age group between 18 and 30 that people are calling the millennials, I guess, because they live through the millennial change. I don't know. But anyway, thinking about that age group and, and some of the characteristics. And one of the things they don't like, they don't like structure. They don't like organization. They don't like things that are too involved. And, and just just keep it simple. And then I, then I thought about... What does it take to get a shoebox from McHenry to Madagascar? I mean, have you thought about that? You've got to go out this week and shop. That's time. And then you've got to come Sunday night and put it all together. That's time. And then somebody's got to take it to Elgin or wherever to the collection point for the region. And then it's got to go on a truck that somebody rented to drive it to Minnesota to the clearing place. And then it's got to be all picked through by people who give their time to go through every box and make sure that we're not sending the wrong things to the wrong places. And then it's got to get repacked in bigger boxes and freighted to the airport, and it's got to be put on a plane that somebody leased the plane, and that's got to fly it to some country where it's going to go. And then, did you notice in Madagascar, they have a 100 people at the distribution point that are there willing to deliver the boxes to the villages and areas, and it's got to be bicycled or canoeed up the river, or it's got to be transported in some other way so that they can get it there. And then somebody's got to deliver that stuff to the children, and somebody's got to share with them the message of Christ. And all of that takes time. And the question is, is that a worthwhile investment? It's organized, it's structured, it's got to be tightly controlled. You can't just say, well, I'll just take the airplane whenever, you know. If we get the boxes there, it's fine if we don't. Somebody has to organize that. That's why the Holy Spirit gives gifts of leadership and gifts of administration and gifts of organization because we have to be ordered in order to accomplish things. The question is, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, how are you spending your time? Is it directed by Him? Is it doing what He wants you to do? And and here's the thing, I I didn't mention this in the 8 o'clock service, but it's just so important. We've got to get this. We've got to get this, because otherwise you, you, you keep comparing yourselves with yourselves and drawing value judgments. Who is more important in, I'm going to go back to Operation Christmas Child, who is more important in the sequence? The person that buys the toys? The person that drives it to Elgin? The person that freights it to Minnesota? The person that flies the plane? The person that bicycles it to a delivery point? Who's the most important person? They're all important. If any one of them doesn't do their job, the whole thing fails. So, who gets the glory? I mean, you know, is it the, is it the person standing there with the little children and says to this one, would you like to receive Jesus Christ? And they say, yes, I want Jesus in my heart. 
oh wow, what a wonderful thing to be that person standing there when that little child received Jesus Christ. But is that the only one God is going to acknowledge for the investment of time? We have got to see that our lives are under His Lordship and that whatever He calls us to do, if He's calling, it has eternal significance. All I do is go to a factory and put parts together all day long. How important is that? Do you feed your family? Do you invest in your children? Do you put a roof over their head? Are you able to share in the kingdom ministry out of your first fruits? How do you tell me how important that is? In the economy of God, when your life is surrendered to Him, there is nothing mundane that is worldly. It is all sacred. It is all His. And the the beauty of that is that when we come to the end of our time and we've run our days out, if we have been obedient to Jesus Christ, whether we've been making tents in a local market or preaching the gospel to the pagans in Athens, we can say, I've run my race. I've finished my course. I have done all that he has asked me to do. There is now laid up for me a crown. I'm going to hear from my Lord, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because whatever you do, if God has called you to do it, it is holy unto the Lord. And whatever you do, if you just do it because that's what I want to do for me, without any thought to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that may not survive the judgment trial. So... Live your lives on this earth with sobriety. Pay attention. Are you under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you realize that you belong to Him? And He can make everything in your life special because of that. And I'm so glad for that. You know, He transforms my work. He transforms my hobbies. He transforms my relationships when I surrender to His Lordship. There ought to be stuff, I'm rambling here, I should quit. There ought to be stuff you just do for fun. Because Jesus says, have a ball. Just go have a blast. Enjoy. And it becomes an act of worship. It becomes glory to Him because it celebrates how He made us and who we are. And He's pleased. He is not a harsh taskmaster. He delights in us. May we equally delight in Him. Father, I pray this morning that You would help us very clearly to see 
that we belong to you. That our time and our lives are not our own, just as our money and our resources are not our own. They all belong to you. And I pray that we would learn to trust you. That if we submit to you, you will bring us the greatest joy and the deepest fulfillment and the most fun. And when we come to the end of the journey, we will have no regrets. And wherever we are this morning, Lord, throughout this room, wherever any person is today, thank you. Thank you that the Apostle Paul gave us the example, forgetting what lies behind and looking forward to what is ahead. I press toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Give us the grace to turn the page on yesterday and put it under the blood. Today, today, we can live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and redeem the time because the days are evil. In Jesus' name, amen.